best tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the known. Science is a collaborative enterprise spinning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to April's edition of Blue PsyCon. I'm Jacob Pukmisra, and uh, we have Sarah Walker today to discuss an essay that she's written for the FQXI essay contest titled The Descent of Math. Uh, if you're new to our podcast, this is a podcast series of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science that features the ideas, research, and philosophy of members and friends of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. You can check us out online at bmsis.org. You can listen to our podcast and previous episodes at bmsis.org slash podcast. And you can also find us on iTunes. Um, and continuing with, our, continuing with our tradition, uh, when our show was previously named Beer with BMSI, BMSIS, and we'd like to feature uh, beverages of all kinds from all around the world. And we ask our listeners to please send us your beverages. Send us... Uh, any kind of beverage that you like to have for any time of the day, breakfast, lunch, dinner, nighttime, whatever you want, send us a full recipe to podcasts at bmsis.org. We'll be happy to feature your beverage on one of our upcoming shows. For today, we have a non-alcoholic beverage, seltzer water. Seltzer water is great if you're tired of tap water, you want to spice up your water a little bit. If you're traveling to Europe, water with gas, it might be called. Uh, it's kind of hard to get what they call still water over there. So, you know, a little bit of bubbles definitely touches up the water a bit. It's non-alcoholic, so I believe it's legal for everybody to drink. Although if you are an alcohol-based life form, then I might caution you to uh, please consume your water responsibly. So with that, Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. So tell us a little bit about the essay and the essay contest. So the F FQXI is the Foundational Questions Institute, and they've done a number of these essay contests, right? Yes, they do one annually, and they're usually focused on some fundamental question, typically in physics, most often cosmology more than anything else. And the idea is to foster discussion on sort of these big questions that we don't really have answers to, and oftentimes they might border philosophy in, in some of the aspects that you actually need tackle to address these questions. So this year is about whether mathematics and our ability to use math to describe the world is just sort of a fluke or if there's actually something about the structure of reality that corresponds to mathematics or, you know, we're tricking ourselves basically. Oh, wow. So the descent of math, what you mean by that is almost the idea that our arrival at mathematics may not just be happenstance. Maybe there's some reason that we are at at this point with mathematics and, and it's maybe, sh shall I say inevitable? Is that too strong of a word? I'm not 100% convinced if it's inevitable or not, but I think my general stance um, in approaching any of these questions from a scientific viewpoint is that things are often not just coincidences. So if you, for example, have beings capable of doing science and using math to describe the world, that could be some very weird random fluke but it probably more likely has a function or some kind of purpose. And you don't like to use words like purpose in science, but usually when you're talking about living systems, it seems kind of a natural way to describe them. A lot of people, particularly in this essay contest, have really been focusing on whether, whether reality out there is really describable in terms of mathematics and if the universe is mathematical in its structure. 
And my perspective on the problem is that what we know of math is that we use math and we use math to do things. My perspective on the problem is really that that's actually maybe a form, more fundamental clue about what it is about our ability to use math. And uh, the reason that I'm taking that perspective is that a lot of my work, um, especially over the last several years, has been on trying to develop a more fundamental theory of living systems and why they arise in the natural world and what they are as physical systems. So I'm really trying to tackle the perspective that life is a fundamental physical phenomena and it has very unique features associated with it. And those features have something to do with how they living systems use information. And one of the things that living systems seem to do with information that we don't see in other physical systems is they use information to do things. And, and in particular, they actually manipulate the physical world using information in ways that maybe aren't necessarily encoded in initial conditions. And um, so when this essay contest came up, I was like, well, there must be some connection between that and sort of our ability to use mathematics. Um, and so I started thinking about that a little bit more. And if you think about, you know, what it is that we're doing when we're using math, in some ways, one of the ways I like to think about it is you're kind of making um, things possible that weren't possible before humans had the ability to use mathematics. So the example that I like to give is thinking about, like, for example, Newton's law emotion, right? Or laws of gravitation, right? So if you think about the earth plus the moon and, you know, how many satellites we can have without physical systems that have knowledge of Newton's laws, there's a finite, you know, set of, of possibilities. We have one moon as we know about it now. We might have had a couple of captured asteroids orbiting earth, maybe no moon at all, but there's, there's a very small finite set of possibilities of possible states that that system could have in the absence of beings that have knowledge of Newton's laws. If you think about humans and our ability to use gravitation and how many satellites um, Earth could have with a being like organisms like humans, uh, the number of states is exponentially <laughs> increased, number of possible states of Earth plus satellites. Um, so that's kind of a toy example, and it seems kind of um, like I'm just kind of throwing like weird things out. But I think that's actually kind of a profound observation about what it is that we as humans are doing as physical systems. Um, and so the argument that I like to make is that you can think of all the things that are physically possible. And usually in physics, we assume all the things that are physically possible, in, in which I mean things that don't violate any known laws of physics, are actually possible in reality. My argument is that some of those things are only possible in reality if you have particular physical systems that can construct those things. And so I'm making a distinction between states of the world that are accessible and states of the world that are possible. Perhaps is one way to think about this. If we go back to the Jurassic period, there's nothing in the laws of physics saying you can't have an orbiting satellite with a cell phone, but there's presumably nothing around in the Jurassic period on Earth to invent those things. Right. That's exactly right. Um, and so if I were to assign a purpose to living systems, which I may or may not be inclined to do, depending on what day of the week it is, um, <laughs> it might be to make more states of the world physically accessible. That, that is actually a function for what biology does. Um, and in that sense, uh, it's a little bit like the second law uh, of thermodynamics, where you think like the states that are most probable are the ones that are going to be most visited. Um, in, this, in this sense, um, uh, what I'm trying to argue is that there are certain physical systems that make more states of the world accessible. And through 
you know, the process of biological evolution, you're selecting on this accessibility. So eventually mass and things like that arise because if you think about what modern technology and how many things we can create with modern technology, it's many, 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 many more things that wouldn't have existed in the Jurassic period. So that's a really interesting idea because a lot of times with evolution, we think about a new creature, a new species arising to fill an ecological niche. But you're almost suggesting that there's an evolutionary process that creates new niche space by actually opening up new exploratory space. And so rather than just trying to better adapt to existing environments, you're trying to invent new solutions. It's basically evolution is innovating and yeah. coming up with new ways of surviving that weren't possible before. Yeah. So if you so other creatures do this for sure, right? Like humans can do satellites, but you know, I, I think of you know, birds and beavers as two examples, like certainly yeah. other creatures build <laughs> things and manipulate their environments, right? Yeah. No, yeah, birds and beavers are great examples. I mean, so so as I was trying to say before that, a lot of this kind of derives um, uh, more fundamentally, hopefully from a theory for life that would be kind of based on, on this as being sort of uh, what living systems are and what they do. I see. Uh, and so even from like the most humble bacteria, if you think about what bacteria do, they, they control a certain, you know, set of chemical reactions, but in so doing, they make new things possible. Like they can get up and, you know, move three feet, whereas those chemical reactions couldn't do it otherwise. Um, and so, um, so I think that this is actually kind of a hallmark feature of living systems. If you, if you look at any living system, um, and, uh, if you actually look at the dynamics of these kind of systems and the fact that I mentioned that that information or math or something is, is necessary to do these kind of things. Um, and uh, that's actually a fundamental break with the way that we usually do physics, which is why I think this is kind of exciting. Um, and so uh, for those that aren't physicists in the audience, um, usually when we describe physical systems, uh, we talk about an initial condition and some kind of law of motion. So we have this sort of dichotomy between initial conditions and laws of motion. And those are the two things that we need to describe the world. And so when you're talking about something like the complexity of the biosphere today, and you want to go with that kind of physical description of it, the place that you say that that complexity has to come from is usually the initial condition, because that's the only place that you have flexibility, because we kind of assume a very odd ontological status with the laws of physics. In, in some sense, a lot of times we assume that they exist outside of the universe and, and they're immutable and um, you know they're there. So the place that we have flexibility is with the, the initial conditions. So that's actually one of the places that I start with the essay with taking issue with our traditional approaches to physics is that if you assume that you have special initial conditions to get somewhere, that's a pretty big assumption. So for example, in our Newton's law analogy, that would require um, something in the initial conditions to have knowledge of Newton's law in some regard. If you think about Newton's law has to be encoded in initial conditions of the universe in order for there to be physical beings that use Newton's law to launch satellite. I don't know about you guys, but I'm actually kind of uncomfortable with that kind of situation. It just seems very odd to me. And on the flip side of that, in physics, we also often talk about, um, particularly in statistical physics, um, something called ergodicity, which is basically the idea that if you have a physical system like a gas, it will eventually visit all possible states of that configuration of that state space of that system. And a lot of people think that that's true of the universe writ large. So they think uh, a an argument in physics that you'll often hear is that eventually the universe will visit possible states. 
So we have these kind of two opposing views of physics that I think are very uh, contradictory of each other. One is that you need special conditions, special initial conditions to get to states of complexity. And the other is that you'll get everywhere from anywhere, which means that there really should be no uh, specialness assigned to any particular initial condition because everything is is equally you know, possible in, in this, this kind of uh, trajectory. And so neither one of those seem to really sit right. I think one of the things that's really odd about biological systems is they don't really seem that entrained to their initial conditions um, in, in the fact that if you think about biology, a good example might be sort of like diversification in biological evolution. You could think of like an ancestral organism, uh, like our common ancestor with a chimp, for example, as an initial state, right? But then we get two very different outputs. We get us and chimps. Right. But we, we obviously share a, a common ancestor. This is kind of a very um, sort of coarse example. But but the basic idea is that starting from a particular initial condition in biology, you can get many possible outputs. Um, and that's not that's not how we describe physics, because remember, again, we have an initial condition and laws of motion. And so what those kind of dynamics say is that at any given point in time in the future, I will know exactly precisely one state that that system will be in. Um, and biology seems to defy that by being in potentially a plethora of possible states. Um, and so... So, Sarah, I have a question. This is Dimitra. Sure. Yeah, that's fine. I yes. can keep talking all day, so please interrupt me at any time, anyone. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but if you look at quantum mechanics, then you don't have a specific state. You mm -hmm. have a probability of a number of uh, different outcomes. Yeah. So we have invented math to deal with it. <laughs> so, so maybe it is not all, you know, just about... Now we've invented math to discover that. <laughs> right, 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 right. So maybe biology, uh, the kind of argument you're making, maybe quantum mechanics has some relevance there? Well, you know, a lot of people like to evoke quantum indeterminism when they're talking about all of these kind of things in biology. But ultimately, I feel very uncomfortable with that because we know biological systems mostly live in a classical world. So there might be some random effects that kind of filter up from the quantum world, but ultimately what you want to describe is in some sense classical. And so I'm really looking for biological systems to do the work. Right? So um, to not open a can of worms. The place I've been thinking about that, <laughs> I will open a can of worms. Sorry. Um, the place I've been That's thinking what about this is that, for. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I've been about that particular issue about the most, and I'm actually writing a paper on this right now, um, is a problem of free will. Right. So so people usually assume that free will requires some randomness um, in the structure of reality so that you can have indeterminate outcomes. And they like to invoke quantum mechanics as the source of that randomness. Now, I have a fundamental problem with that because there's no coupling between the source of randomness and the decisions that you make as an individual. Right. So so just because there's some randomness, you know, in the particular quantum processes that are happening in my body doesn't mean that that has any bearing on the actual decisions I make on the information I'm getting from my environment. So um, so the point I guess I'm trying to make is that you can invoke quantum indeterminism, but it's not necessarily coupled directly coupled to the kind of dynamics that you're actually interested in. So what I would like is for the um, this sort of path dependence that, uh, you know, multiple initial conditions can have multiple possible outcomes to actually be an emergent property of the dynamics of biological systems and not have to rely on some fuzzy logic between the quantum and classical realm that is ill-defined and maybe not directly coupled to that process. Does that make sense? I mean, I brought quantum mechanics just because, you know, you have a structure where you have 
one initial condition and then you have several possible outcomes but to apply in you know in a macro universe like you're saying so not just use the same laws of quantum mechanics mm-hmm. but some 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 mathematical structure which is similar that you can have multiple mm-hmm. outcomes mm-hmm. Uh, depending on the situation and i i i think we do um I mean, I think there is some sense of what that structure is. And for me, that's, that structure is actually including explicitly information in your dynamical equations. Because information, if you think about what, what an information variable is, it's something that necessarily must carry at least two possible values. Um, otherwise, it wouldn't carry information. This is not accommodated in sort of that traditional picture of physics I was talking about before, because you have this, this initial condition laws of motion, those kind of physical systems can only be in one state as a function of time, which means that there's actually no role for information in describing those systems. We can use it in kind of a passive sense, but they, they don't, uh, the systems don't carry inform- information in, in the kind of sense that you want to define it. Um, that's kind of a subtle point, but that's actually where I think this indeterminism arises is that biological systems are, um, they're subsystems of a universe, right? They're not the whole universe. And those subsystems are coupled through information. And that information can be multivalued depending on what we call in physics, the coarse graining of, of the world, like how they decide to, to partition the world. And by that, it might mean that I choose to look at the whiteboard behind me and see that the world the board is white, or I choose to look at it and I see that it's solid. Those are two different ways of describing that system, and both are based on information that's coming to me um, from the light I receive from that board. Uh, but they're very, you know, depending on which attribute I care about, I might act differently. Um, and and that's actually, I think, what biological systems are doing and where their indeterminacy comes from is from the way that they actually interact. Uh, through information with the external world. Sarah, what do you think of the possibility of um, stochastic variables that are solely based on location? So I think there's been some good arguments that that we have uh, environmental input into biological information and that mm-hmm. there are these things that, that appear stochastic because of the contingent nature of the specific location of an individual. Mm-hmm. So you know, it could even be classically determinist. I, I don't need, yeah. think we need to go that far, but, and still have all of these contingent properties. What do you think of, of that way of generating variation? I mean, I think stochasticity is fine. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's actually very consistent with what I'm saying in some ways. So for example, um, the way I view it is information is the indeterminacy. You know, what information you read is in some sense environmentally dependent, because if you're in one particular niche space, you might be coarse graining the world in one way. And if you're in another, you might do it a different way. And those things might look like they have some stochastic origin, but it's actually, you know, because of the particular way those systems were interacting with their environment in in those particular contexts. So so I think I think that's fine. Personally, because I'm I'm very fixated on this one particular kind of thing I'm trying to describe, which we all have to like fixate on something. That I that's why I don't worry about quantum indeterminism or stochasticity or anything. Because I think if you actually put information in your equations, you get enough of the indeterminism that you that gives you the kind of behavior you would expect out of biological systems. But it's more natural because it's defined by biology's interaction with the environment rather than 
it, to me that that's a more natural description of what you want in some some sense is not for these things to be externally imposed but then to be sort of intrinsic to biological organization or at least that's what i would hope like if you're thinking for a theory of life you don't want all of the things that are weird about life to arise from quantum indeterminism or stochasticity because then that tells you nothing really about life it just says there's some random processes and then that gives you some weird states that look you know and and whereas what i'm trying to do is is describe what biology is at a physical level and, and for that i think most of the odd properties need to come intrinsically from the definition of it. if i could try to bring it back to math from that description rather than saying mathematics is inevitable maybe i could say mathematics is a biological outcome mm -hmm. Because a lot of mathematicians see sort of mathematics as, as, you know, dualistic in nature, that math is like fundamentally exists in some real way. And by discovering a mathematical theory, you're uncovering something new about the way things are in a, in, in a capital T truth sense. Yeah. Um, so maybe is it fair to say that you're saying that mathematics is you know, state space that humans evolved into and and gave yeah. us this tremendous amount of possibility that we're still exploring today. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I actually don't really understand um, in a lot of ways, ways why we assign such primacy to mathematics, right? Because like language and art and, and other things are sort of also manifestations of human expression that we use in sort of similar ways. Um, not exactly the same as math, but but they are information encodings that describe the world that we use to manipulate states of the world. So um, so I think so math. You could is also good. talk about the descent of art, perhaps, and yeah. it might be equally fair. Yes, it might be or language for sure. Uh, yeah. So um, yeah. Uh, so yeah. what uh, I mean. You know, of course, we don't know any answer to this, but, you know, we're still exploring mathematics. There's still a lot to come. But, I mean, there has to be, at least in theory, something beyond this then. Whatever, you know, transhumans is uh -huh. what the, the futurists like to call, you know, whatever humans evolve into will be transhumans then. Right. So, I mean, you know, will we have trans art and trans math and, and tra trans music and, you know, everything, will, you know, something completely different? Like... Could could, could a you know a, an early hominid have conceived of, of what mathematics would be like today? Probably not. And um, so it yeah. just makes me think that well, what is our state space going to be like in a millennium? Probably probably something we can't even imagine right now. No, I I don't know what it is. But one of the things I've been trying to do is make arguments for like sort of um, that humans should longevity of human civilization right because we have like these sort of bleak ap apocalyptic views of humanity and things um but it'd be kind of like this is kind of just a for fun thing um but it'd be fun if you could make some arguments that like um human systems or you know physical systems that act like us actually should should live for a long time as civil technological civilizations um, and the reason I would argue that physically is because the most sort of probable states in this kind of formalism are the ones that have the most physically accessible states. Because if you think about like sort of a random walk through all of the possible states, the ones you're going to end up on the most are the ones that are highly connected to other states, which means that they have to have information and codings about other states and they need to have a lot of them. Um, and so that sort of gives you a natural arrow of complexity where you might have increasing increasingly complex biological systems or technological systems 
as a function of time if you if you try to look at those kind of trajectories on average. So I would hope that at least I can't say what the next phase will be, but that there would be a next phase because that would be sort of where the arrow of time in these systems would be trending. Um, so I'm trying to make so I'm trying <laughs> eventually I'll write a paper on that, but I'm trying to like inject some positivism into this bleak view that physics has left with humanity that we mean nothing and have no role in the cosmos. So that's kind of my goal. <laughs> Sarah, um, Schrodinger ran into trouble with his uh, with his idea of of things that are farther away from equilibrium mm -hmm. um, because it's just it, it, everything's everything's going to equilibrium. It depends on how long it takes. Right. I wonder if it would be possible to recast your idea, not in terms of um, states that are accessible. I mean, if we if we have a, a Lucretian view of the universe, all states are accessible um, with yeah. or without life eventually. This is um, the traditional argument that people have made, and I'm I'm countering that argument by saying, no, that's not true. Right. Um, so so what I'm saying is, is, though, that what if we said that um, in these more complex states, Things were accessible by more things were accessible by shorter paths. Mm -hmm. That's very true. Yeah, you could do that. Um, so one of the things I've been thinking about lately is kind of trying to look at non-equilibrium statistical physics from this framework, because that's been a really, you know, a really difficult place to make progress. Uh, and I think part of the problem is that some of the fundamental assumptions we make in equilibrium statistical physics are not valid. Uh, for what I would call real physical systems, <laughs> anything that's not in equilibrium. Um, so I think some of those arguments would really apply to that kind of formalism, but I'm just kind of scratching the surface of that now. But I've done, I've done, I mean, some of these calculations that I'm, I'm are, well, some of the things that I'm talking about sort of at a philosophical level, I've done calculations in cellular automata. And so cellular automata, uh, for those that don't know in the audience, are um, uh, mathematical models from computer science that have discrete states. So you might have cells that are described as black or white, and they have local rules that determine the update behavior. And so they make all kinds of like beautiful pictures and people like looking at them, lots of pretty triangles and fractals and all that kind of stuff. So one of the questions I asked with that analysis was just if you had an arbitrary elementary CA, just basic one-dimensional system with nearest neighbor rules, is there any set of rules, any set of law of physics that will allow you to get anywhere? from any initial condition. And as it turns out, there is not a single one. There's not one trajectory you can build that will visit every possible state in that kind of toy model universe. And I think that that's actually very telling because those are kind of one of the simplest local rule systems and, and laws of physics are based on local rules that you could construct. But what you can do is if you introduce information to that system by coupling it to some kind of external system and having you can make short paths between things like you're suggesting, Lucas, and then you can you can you can make the entire network connected. And so you can you can build trajectories where you can get anywhere from anywhere, but they require information to do so. So um, and I think that's actually kind of uh, intuitive. Like if you think about um, uh, statistical physics, there's some work connecting statistical physics to information theory. And when you do that, like in Jane's whole formalism of statistical physics, he did this really elegant analysis where he basically derived thermodynamics from information theory and states of knowledge about the world. And it's very profound and insane. It's really crazy stuff. Um, but one of the things that is interesting about his analysis is when you do that, there's a couple assumptions of thermodynamics you don't need. And one of them is ergodicity. You don't need a physical system to actually get anywhere from anywhere, but it will look like it has to. 
Um, and so I think, I think some of our assumptions deriving these things like from the bottom up are maybe, you know, when we think about the fact that we interact with the world only through measurement, which is the only assumption that James made, that there are some fundamental assumptions that we're making about the structure of reality that maybe aren't real. And, and that maybe that's why we're not making progress in some areas like non-equilibrium physics or life, which seem to be related. So yeah, who knows? <laughs> Could all be wild speculation, but that's more fun. <laughs> well, I really like this as a way of, of thinking about, you know, all the, the mechanisms of evolution, because there's yeah. certainly something that's accumulated, but complexity is never quite satisfying. And, and, you know, so thinking about information and accessible states is perhaps, uh, you know, it's at least yeah. interesting for me to, to think about a little bit. Listeners? Thanks for tuning in. This has been Blue SciCon. You can check us out on the web at bmsis.org slash podcast. Please send your beverage selections to podcast at bmsis.org. We will do our best to feature them. Thanks again. We will see you next Science replaces private prejudice with publicly verifiable evidence. There's real poetry in the real world. Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science. And with it, we can improve our lives.